Well, good morning. Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd like to invite you to join me. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And I'm so thankful that God has given us another opportunity to be able to gather together today uh, as his redeemed people and uh, to consider this very pastoral letter that Paul has written to Titus that uh, we can glean much from. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 11. So worship with me in the reading of God's word. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Uh, Let's ask again for his help. Father, thank you for the time that you give us here today. And we ask that very thing. Lord, you've been so faithful to us week after week to feed us from your word. We anticipate the same today. So we ask that your, your spirit would elevate everything necessary to promote our love for Christ and to help us to faithfully love others. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. So one of the great joys and complexities that we have on earth is the relationship that we have toward one another. The complexities come when our lives are centered around self rather than Christ. The complexities are seen when our relationships evolve around our problems with each other rather than Christ. Every Christian in this room can understand what I'm saying right now, not because you think that I'm singling you out or that I'm talking directly towards you because I'm not doing that, but on the basis that this is the lived experience of humanity. It's, it's this understanding, this awareness that we are complex human beings that are relating to other complex human beings. And it's an ongoing battle to give uh, uh, deference towards others, to consider others as more important than ourselves and it's a daily ongoing battle for us to keep um, and esteem our love for Christ more than our own 
prefaces. This leads us to verse 8 that we just read just a few seconds ago. Paul writes to Titus, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So that's what I want to do today. That's all I want to do today is to speak confidently to you as Paul has to Titus. So if I could summarize today's sermon in a run-on sentence, it would sound something like this. The gospel is the grounds and the guide and, and guides the responsibility we have to governing authorities, our disposition toward all humanity, the type of conversations we ought to not entangle ourselves in, and the kind of person whom we reject. So the gospel is the grounds. It also guides our responsibility to governing authorities. It guides and grounds what our disposition towards all humanity should look like. It also helps us to see the type of conversations that we ought not to entangle ourselves in. And it helps us to see clearly the kind of person that Paul tells Titus to reject. He does this by way of reminders and remembrance, which is a theme that we see early on in the Old Testament and continues in the New Testament. How often when reading through the Old Testament do we, do we see the, the prophets and the psalmists calling to their, rec their, their recollection God's redemptive work on their behalf? We, go we do good to not only acknowledge that we need reminders, but we also need to see that they are good and they are profitable for us. So their first point is this, God has saved us. He saved you. God has saved you. Like ponder the reality of this for just a few moments. He saved you. He has really saved you. He saved you. Not on the basis of your good works, not on the basis of your righteousness. He saved you in spite of those things. All of these things which only bring condemnation to you, Christ has offered himself to save us from these things. He has redeemed us from every lawless deed. He saved us. For this news to be so marvelous to us means that we need to take a sober look at what we once were. And so even though it's, we're, we're looking at verses one through 11 today, I'm gonna begin with verses three through eight and then we'll go back to verse 1, then to verse 2, then to verse 9, and lastly with verses 10 through 11. So we're beginning here with verses 3 through 8 because, again, this is the grounds. This is the basis. We, we, we can't consider what anything in life looks like if we don't understand what we once were. We don't understand this glorious salvation that we have in Christ. So for this news to be marvelous to us, it means we take a sober look at what we once were. If verses four through seven are in the running for the best verses in the Bible, then verse three 
has a solid lead on being one of the most incriminating in the Bible. When we spent the first 30 seconds marveling at our salvation in Christ, that's good stuff. But verse 3 is quite incriminating. We were foolish, means we were without spiritual understanding, disobedient. This is in our posture in relationship to God. We were deceived, meaning we were listening to a false guide that was leading us astray. We were slaves to various lusts and pleasures. This list is so long that the, the only word that can accurately describe it is various. We were in bondage to our lust. We were held captive by our pleasures, malice, envy, hate, full of mischief. This is our resume. This is who we are. I mean, many of us have, have probably put together res resumes or what are considered a curriculum uh, vitae, which is a Latin term for course of life. Many of us have put uh, those together before as we've considered a job. But who among us has ever included any of the lists that we just read as, as part of our course of life? How often have you presented yourself to a, to a potential employer as, I just want you to know that I, I was once a foolish person. I was disobedient. I was deceived. I was full of hate, full of mischief. That's, that's what I once was. We, we don't think in those terms when we think about ourselves. Or maybe if you've never even submitted a resume or CV, you've certainly been asked by someone to give uh, some sort of history about yourself. Tell me, tell me a little bit about who you are. This is not, verse three is not the kind of language that we use to describe ourselves. But it's nonetheless true. It's accurate. No humble Christian can look at verse three and even attempt to argue against what Paul is telling Titus and reminding Titus, remember, this is, this is who you once were. This history isn't primarily on what we have not done, but who we really are apart from regeneration. So even though the attention is given to Titus' former way of life, it seems prudent to take a moment and speak to anybody in this room who might still be living in verse 3. Christians can look at verse 3 and be in agreement that, yes, th that is me. That's who I am apart from the saving work of Christ. But if you are not in Christ, then you are living and operating and functioning and worshiping out of verse 3. If that's not enough, consider with me other places in the Bible that speak toward what we are apart from Christ. First Corinthians, or excuse me, First Kings 8, 46. I've got about a dozen verses. For there is no man who does not sin. Psalm 143, verse 10, verse 2. For in your sight, no man living is righteous. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say I've cleansed my heart? I'm pure from my sin. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. 
Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have gone or turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Romans 3, none are righteous, none who do good. Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath. Colossians 1, 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds. Mark 7 Jesus said, it's not the things that go into the man that defile the man, but it's what comes out of the man that defiles the man. In Matthew 12 and Luke 6, pick up the same account and say, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So dozen verses all around the Bible, much more to be said that gives an accurate picture of humanity apart from the regeneration and righteousness of Christ. So let me ask those here among us who may still be living in verse three, is what the Bible just described, is is this the present condition of your soul? In his book, Joseph Eileen, his book, A Sure Guide to Heaven, said God finds nothing in us to turn his heart towards us. But there is plenty to turn him away and to provoke his holy anger. Nothing within us us that is good, nothing within us that is righteous, nothing within us that adds any value or merit to Christ. Absolutely nothing within us. It's, It's not, this is not, you know, this is not a red-faced, red-head, angry-ish-looking guy standing in front of you telling you these things. This is, this is coming out of Scripture's account of mankind apart from Christ. And who we are without, without Christ, it fleshes itself out in what we do. And Paul provides one of his sin lists to give clear context to his instruction. So why is it? Why is it in this moment, why why is Paul drawing attention to the past? Is Is he trying to shame Titus? Absolutely not. He's making much of God's salvation in Christ. That's why he's drawing his attention and drawing his remembrance back to what he once was to make much of the salvation that Titus has in Jesus Christ. So here's a pastoral word for you loved ones. Those of you who are in Christ that may have a tendency to linger in verse three longer than what you ought to. If this is true of you, if you have a hard time uh, getting past verse three, I wanna plead with you not to stop there, keep reading. Because if you stay in verse three, there's two things that are happening. One is that you are on the path towards self-pity. And the second is that you are making light of the mercy of God for us in Christ. What you once were is not who you presently are. So now let's look at the glorious gospel that Paul posits here in verses four through seven. And And to do so, we recognize 
uh, one of the best coordinating conjunctions in all the Bible. And it's the word but. In the English language, this word here is used because it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a helpful, it's a conjunction because it connects ideas that contrast. There's no greater contrast than a person who is in bondage to their sin and the person who is under the mercy and grace of God. And what a seismic and eternal shift we see. This is from God our Savior. We see kindness and love for mankind. So this is the only time that this word for love is used in the New Testament. It's not the only time we see God's love, but it's the only time that we see this word in the New Testament that's used here. And it, it's, it's, it means love for people and it speaks to the character of God. This is the third mention of God our Savior uh, in Titus and it again highlights God's work through Christ. He saves through Christ. He loves through Christ. He is benevolent through Christ. Now, it's important to note here the contrasting qualities of God and earthly rulers and authorities. So even though we, we haven't explained verse one and yet one yet, we, we just to, just to go back, he's calling them to be subject and obedient to rulers and authorities. So what I want to do is I want to contrast the difference between God and these earthly rulers and authorities. And so even though I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here, I do, uh, you know, but to subject yourselves to them is not, you know, subjecting ourselves to these rulers and authorities is not the equivalent then, equivalent of seeing them as your savior. God already has a king for this. And he's not the current leader of the free world, nor will he be a future one. There's no other human being that we can put our trust in than the savior that's been given to us in Christ. Not only should we generally believe that Jesus is God's savior, but we should functionally hold to this as well. And to say it a different way would be to, would be to say that if you believe Jesus is Lord, and you put hope in a political party, what you're doing is saying one thing, but you're functionally believing in another. Christ is our salvation. And this salvation is based on God's mercy to us in Christ. Our righteousness only serves to condemn us. He saves us through Holy Spirit regeneration. The Holy Spirit is the one who quickens us. He makes us alive to Christ. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, and it is only through the spirit of the living God that we can be brought from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. This is once again drawing our attention to eternal contrasts that we see here. Spiritual death and spiritual life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, there, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So not only have we been made a new creation, we are continually being renewed by the Holy Spirit. Our nature has changed, we're pure. We now have access to God. We are given a new heart. We've been given new desires, new changes, a new history. All these things that are, that, that character, all these things that character, all, let's try this for a third time. All these things that characterize, I think my tongue's freezing up. All these things that characterize Christ 
are now active in us. In his commentary, Yarbrough says about verse six, Paul envisions an issuance of the Holy Spirit, not in dabs and dribbles, but in a full and rich stream. Like, isn't this, isn't this remarkable? Verse six, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's through Christ that we get a Niagara Falls outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon our life. It's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that our new life in Christ is overflowing with the Holy Spirit. So this means we can live in subjection to earthly authorities because in God's eternal judicial system, you've been justified by the grace of Christ and made co-heirs of, of the eternal hope or co-heirs to the hope of eternal life. This means there's already prepared for us a change of address. One day the heavenly citizenship that we have in heaven that Christ said he's going away to prepare for in John 14 will be our eternal dwelling. So this is God's salvation for us in Christ. Secondly, is our responsibility to governing authorities. Verse one. The instruction here is for Titus to remind the Christians in Crete that as believers, we are citizens of heaven and we also have to submit ourselves to earthly governing authorities. Here he draws a distinction between submissive people, that's what he's calling them to here, and the rebellious people that he made reference to in chapter one, verse 10 and verse 16. Those are considered insubordinate type people. They were, he described them as rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers who professed to know God, but by their own deeds they denied him and thus were worthless for any good deed. So he's drawn a con, again, here's another, yet again, another contrast between an insubordinate person and a submissive person. A Christian can remain in allegiance with Christ and be obedient to the governing authorities above them. So though we don't know for certain, Paul is likely drawn upon earlier instruction he gave to the Romans uh, in Romans 13, one through seven, and what he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter two, verses 13 through uh, 17. So I'm, we're not gonna look at either one of those passages at any length or in depth, but I wanna summarize a few, thing from, few things from both of those that maybe, uh, or should help us to understand what he's reminding Titus of. Every person, Paul wrote in Romans, every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities because God is the one who has placed them in this authority. In essence, it's obey laws, pay taxes. First Peter 2 adds this helpful caveat to honor all people, to love the brotherhood, to fear God and honor the king. So he's calling them to live in subjection to the earthly authorities. So I understand that there's a question that's probably looming in many of our minds. What if what the government or governing authorities, what if what they're asking us, if they're asking us to act in a way that is in stark contrast with the teaching of scripture? Let me answer that question in one way by suggesting that that's not the issue here. They're not 
They're not running into that issue. Subjection and obedience is to help prepare them for every good deed. That's what he's calling them to. The standard and grounds for our responsibility is the goodness and loving kindness of God that we just looked at a few moments ago. Remember, he is the perfect king. We only need, fe- we only need to fear him. But since you're thinking of this question, uh, it is, you're thinking that our subjection to authorities is to the degree that doing so, we, we subject to them to the degree that doing so does not bring us in contradiction with Scripture. In these instances, it is better to obey God than it is to obey man. Equally so, subjection does not mean endorsement. We can and should actively oppose the evils of this age as they are promulgated. The spirit of this age comes out in the face-moving, or the spirit of this age comes out in the fast-moving cultural changes that we see. We're wise to exegete this so that we can lean on and speak the timeless, eternal truth of the eternal God. So maybe another way to consider the next several points is to ask, what is, what is the outward facing responsibility of the church? Paul has already given instruction on the Christ-like character of elders in chapter one and the importance of sound doctrine and how the church should think of our union with Christ in our relationship to each other in chapter two and the wonderful reality that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, training us, instructing us to say no to ungodliness, to say yes to godliness in this present age. But what is the outward facing responsibility of the church toward others? It's what, he's, it's what he's addressing here. And though he doesn't give a ton of detail on, all the, uh, on what all of this practically means, he is building a framework for how we live winsomely in this present age. But it's true, the rub with this command usually comes when you as an individual think the government is overreaching. And let me propose that I believe well-balanced Christians live in this present age, humbly living in the subjection to governing authorities, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. This means that you can and should care about the things that are happening around us. They do matter. But be careful that you're not so engaged in this world that you lose sight of our citizenship in heaven, that you lose sight of our citizenship in heaven. And also be watchful that you don't think present culture, uh, that the present culture changes won't have ramifications on today. Secondly, the disposition that we should have towards others, verse two. These are some ways the image of Christ is shown forth in our day-to-day. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. The aim here is to show perfect consideration for all men. This means that in our speech of others, we ought to be careful not to slander. We should go to great lengths to make sure what we say honors the person and accurately reflects them rather than speaking things that are false or speaking with speculation. It's a, it's, it's a sinful thing to assume another person's motives. To be good is more important than to be right. 
This doesn't negate speaking truth in love or correcting falsehood, but rather draws attention to the distinction between loving admonishment and slander. There's a difference between the two. In our posture towards others, we seek to be gentle and peaceable. Bravado doesn't mark the life of the Christian towards others. It's meekness. It was Jesus who said in Matthew, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. No human being has ever wielded more power with as much humility and meekness as Jesus. Let me say that again. No human has ever wielded more power with as much humility and meekness as Jesus. Christ is the way forward. This humility and meekness doesn't naturally reside in you and it doesn't naturally reside in me. It comes by way of our new life in Christ. It is learned through careful observation of the life and ministry of Jesus. It is cultivated through prayer. It is genuinely sought after in every single relationship that we have. Loved ones, you can be meek and gentle and remain doggedly firm in your obedience and allegiance to Christ. You can do both because we see it in Christ. We see it modeled in Christ. Fourth, the conversations, the gospel being the grounds to help us to see conversations that we ought not entangle ourselves in. Verse nine, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Paul's a good teacher and as a good teacher, he provides clarity on what types of conversations are foolish and, unpro- and unprofitable. Faithful teaching both instructs and warns. Paul models as much here. This is the fruit of what God has done for us in and through Christ. Again, chapter two, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly in this present age. And he lists these conversations that they ought to avoid, the controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels. These cesspools of conversation is something Paul addressed with Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter one. These false teachers who wanted to be teachers of the law were actually doing the opposite. They turned aside to fruitless discussion. They demonstrated that they did not know what they were talking about and were making confident assertions on matters that they did not understand. They were false and fools. And as we pointed to earlier in the first chapter of Titus, they proved in their behavior that they were denying God. People who are worthless for good deeds engage themselves in worthless conversations. This was different from the goal of Paul's instruction. The goal of his instruction, he said, my goal is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So this this section here that we're considering today and really the whole letter is pastoral in tone and it's to show that faith is shown in practice. Belief is seen in our behavior. 
To void means to, to go around. And this is not a full-on admission to avoid conversations involving, involving theological disagreement. You can have those kind of conversations. These kind of conversations can serve as a great way for iron to sharpen iron. Good disagreements are those where honor to God are foremost and where you understand the person in front of you is not an enemy, but someone for whom Christ died. These conversations and these people can help us see that we're human, that we don't know everything. These conversations can help us grow. They can help change us more into the conformity of Christ. They can help strengthen our handle on God's word and they can help us grow in our love and appreciation for others. Those are good disagreements to have but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying is the reason for avoiding such conversations are that they are godless. Avoid the conversations that are godless. Another way to say this is that the conversations themselves, whether intentional or not, are meant to pull you away from the word rather than push you into the word. They are meant to distract you from Christ rather than to distract you with Christ. They don't push you towards others in peaceable and gentle ways. Rather, they tempt you toward maligning others, which can happen verbally or it can happen internally. So again, I want to encourage us to examine yourselves. Watch yourself. Watch that, that not only what you say about a person... So be mindful not only what you would say to them, to their face, or what you would say to them online, but also be mindful of any way that you may unfairly and perhaps sinfully tear their character apart internally. And lastly, the gospel is the golden grounds to help us to see the kind of person that we should reject. Verse 10 and 11. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. This word here is a command. It's It's a command from the Lord. And two relational matters that we ought to keep in mind that help frame the approach we have to this kind or the two two matters to keep in mind to help frame the approach that we should take toward a person like this we do this according to verse two in an effort to do good to all and we do this in a way that helps remember what we once were Make sense? So before we talk about what it looks like to reject a divisive person, we do that in an effort to maintain, this is what it looks like to do good to all people. And we do so mindful of what we once were before Christ. That, again, that, that's, that's what Paul is, that's a reason that Paul is drawing to his attention and his recollection the, the life before Christ. So this person that he's talking about is a person who promotes division by his views. This person is not an agree to disagree person, 
but as a person that is primarily and in some cases only interested in his view and he won't stop until you're in agreement with him. Proverbs 18 is remarkably helpful in getting underneath the behavior and the motives and heart of a person such as this. Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. The very next verse, a fool, del- a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. Verse 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a citadel. So why, why take action against this divisive man? How is this good? Are we not being open to forgiveness if we reject such a one? Are we closing access that they might have to the gospel if we reject them? These are all good, well-intentioned questions. This command or this action is, is not harsh, but is actually love toward him. It recognizes him as warped in his thinking because he has a heart of corruption. It helps us to understand the motives underneath a divisive person's interest in a relationship with us. It's self-serving. The intent is to draw you in to manipulate or coerce you to his way of thinking. This is the controlling motive, this is the controlling motive of this destructive person. By rejecting such a person, we remove, this is why it's good for them. By rejecting such a person, we remove any voice that he can use to fuel his own corrupt heart. Paul calls him sinful, says that he's warped in in this thinking. He is beyond being reasonable. He's unteachable. He is incapable of seeing any other way than his own. So when you give him opportunity after opportunity, you are potentially getting in the way for what is ultimately best for him. And that is to remove every voice in his life but God. The only hope for a divisive person like this is the voice of God. So what do you do with a person like this? Paul told Titus, you reject him. Have nothing to do with him. Ultimately, that is what's best for him. Again, like how, how is this loving? It's loving because you've turned him over to God. Is this harsh? Absolutely not. The opportunity for confession, the prayer for repentance, the desire for reconciliation, all of this still remain. But the process doesn't have to start until he humbles himself before God, until he disarms his weapons of divisiveness, until he grieves with others' assessment of seeing what he cannot see in himself, and until he gladly walks a path with a new history. Again, let's go back to the Proverbs we just read. You cannot bring a person back into a constructive conversation who follows his own desire and separates himself. You can't do it. 
You cannot out-quarrel a person who quarrels against sound wisdom. It's like trying to persuade a person in this room that it's really warm in here. It's not. You can't. You cannot give helpful instruction to a person who isn't teachable and is only interested in revealing his mind. It's the equivalent of you talking to a wall. You cannot win over a person unwilling to yield to his pride. It is the equivalent of you trying to beat your way through this, through this concrete in order to try to get outside. We're not talking about a Christian. This is not a, we're not talking about a Christian here who simply has a plank in his eye that's in need of a removal. We're talking about a person who needs a new heart. Paul says this person is self-condemned. What a horrifying indictment. Every ounce of self-propagation serves only as his self-condemnation. In every proclamation of rightness, in reality, it's a declaration of condemnation. So again, we would do good here to remember that we too, at one time, were foolish, operating from a desperately wicked heart. We were content on this path and knew no other way to live life than to be preoccupied with our own desires. Our operating and underlying motive was to always make sure that we were taking care of ourselves. That's, that's who we once were. And this helps us to see that even as Christians, speaking of this divisive person, we are more like this divisive person than we are not like him. This holds true for every sinner in front of us. We are more like them than we are not like them. We aren't better than them. The difference is we have undeservedly been shown mercy by God. Had God not given us Christ, there would be no grace leading to salvation. There would be no mercy at all. And as hard as we may wish we could, and as much as we may try, we cannot save this divisive person. But Christ can. So in closing, we draw us back again. Verse eight. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. God's been kind to us in Christ. He's, he's poured out the Holy Spirit upon us through Christ. And this helps us to see what what our responsibility to governing authorities looks like, how we should act towards all men, the kind of conversations that we need to avoid in life, and that we have instruction on what we, to do, what we are to do with a divisive 
person. Let's pray.